0: the chance there was just a dream some of us had still all alone to see but i would 't wanna stay here it's too old and cold and settled in its ways easier all oh, the california california you're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor. this is the living writer show my name is Ashley David and my guest today is Lawrence Goldstein We'll be talking about his new book of poems, A Room in California, You wear many hats. Welcome.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Delightful to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Um, Before we talk about the book a little bit, I want to sort of mention the hats, because they'll come up later in the interview. Um, You are a professor of English at the University of Michigan here in Ann Arbor, the editor of the Michigan Quarterly, and the author of This is Your Fourth Book of Poems, and the numerous books, scholarly and and, uh, prose books as well. So
1: Actually, turns out about 16 books that have my name on the title uh, one way or the other co-editor editor or author
0: <laughs> wonderful as we go through i will focus today on your book of your new book of poems but one of the things that we'll do as we go through the show today is to to think um more broadly of, about what it means to be a living writer and 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 how that manifests in you as a scholar and editor and and poet and writer of non-fiction as well so let's start with the book will you tell us a little bit about it
1: Yes, this is my fourth book of poetry, and it was written over a period of about 10 years, um, which has implications both for the range of cultural references, uh, for chronicling a period of time in which I move from, you might say, middle age to something more than middle age, uh, and also represents changes in poetic styles and in language uh, that... All get included and contained in this book. Um, for me, writing poetry uh, has always been about location, location, location. Uh, the my first book of poetry is called Altamira and is about the Paleolithic caves or has a long poem about the Paleolithic caves in Spain uh, my second book is called The Three Gardens which is a reference to a long poem in the book about the um, Huntington Gardens in Pasadena California uh, and so this fourth book is A Room in California and it's also focused a lot about on California Which is your home state. Uh, Yes, I grew up in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, when you're growing up in a place, you don't see it as remarkable. It's just the place you grow up in, the place you play in, have friends in. It was really when I went away from it, when I went to graduate school uh, at Brown University in Providence and then got hired here at Michigan, uh, that I began to feel the sense of being an exile, I guess, and began to think a lot about what uh, my my years in California really signified um, anecdotes of the past kept coming back to me and I kept writing about them and so all of my books have poems about California and I think that this one perhaps has more and longer poems although about half the book is on subjects other than California but I think that that topic gives an organizing principle uh and a a kind of coherence to the book um, because I keep returning to certain memories there are certain patterns uh that recur throughout the book so um that I think is is one of the one of the aspects that holds it together. Uh, It's really a book about American culture, as seen through the prism of California. It's a book about growing up, about becoming a selfhood, becoming a person, Um, and it's a book about memory. It's a book about time. It's a book uh, in which I measure the distance between the 21st century and the 20th century, between myself as a person in his 60s and what I was like going all the way Way back to being a child of eight or nine years old. Um,
0: well, in reading the book, the it really the the frame of California um, feels a lot like also a heart, an emotional heart in the book. And yeah. let's jump in and and hear one of the poems that okay. that locates itself specifically in California.
1: Okay, one of the features of California that's always interested me is. As everyone knows it 's a uh, Southern California is a place that is obsessed with famous people with celebrities uh, and I think it 's no accident that throughout the book there are encounters between the speaker of the poem, who is sometimes myself, sometimes a different person, with uh, uh, a an actual person of some fame or some former fame, Uh, and so to me, one of the poems that's at the heart of the book uh, in terms of these encounters is called The Celebrity, and this is a poem based mainly on real experience, though, of course, there's some poetic license used in framing the story, Um, The Celebrity. To tell this story, I have to start close up. The odor of schmaltz, the acrid tang of herring, the obscene tint of gefilte fish, some affect of tribal communion in the city of angels. Then add backstory. The day's gut-wrenching last-minute wind by the rams, Bob Waterfield's slow dance in the pocket, Pump once, twice, and a mile-long pass to Elroy, Crazy Legs, Hirsch. After the touchdown, a celebratory late-afternoon ethnic feast downtown. And then we'll pay a call on Aunt Esther, poor woman, the last Jew in Boyle Heights. So far, this is standard-issue urban memory spot of post-war time for the nine-year-old, relishing the soon-to-be-served wonder of it all, like Wordsworth's boy at the lakeshore, waiting for hooted echoes from the ghostly woods, spreading sour cream on my latkes, savoring the Yiddish kite, more pungent than the plain English of west-side assimilation. Here's what makes this story different, deep. My father wraps my hand in his, leans, whispers feelingly, "'Look at that man behind you, corner booth, in the gray suit and blue tie.' I catch the conspiratorial tone, drop my napkin, bend down, fire a glance at this simian, heavy-browed object of more than my scrutiny, none of which he acknowledges. "'That's Mickey Cohen,' my mother hisses.' Less awestruck and quick to add an epithet, the vicious gangster. He's killed plenty. So I look again, but never catch his eye. Crazy Legs was my favorite athlete. I piously hoarded his cards, clipped his portraits from sport, lined up for his far-from-classic movie bio. In reverie, I still recreate his eccentric moves, galloping down one sideline, Tom Fears down another, and gathering the peanut-sized ball to his gold jersey with stupefying grace. Everyone in the stands would rise and shout him into the end zone, ten yards ahead of any tackler. He was one kind of California idol faster and more nimble, a flash of spirit wrapped in a body any boy would die for. You see, I'm being evasive. You know enough about narratives to keep your eye on the cameo, the significant facts sitting there in the deli, arching an eye at the eavesdropping staff, while his Kreplach cools and thrilled customers nudge spouses and kids like myself. Look, they say, how brazenly crime's famous agents live among us. Nothing like New York, but here, too, Murder Incorporated has a franchise, a Jewish pantheon, to house the psychotics of our very own chosen family, the FBI's most wanted, here on our prosperous frontier. They got Bugsy. They'll get Mickey soon enough. So feast your eyes, Larry, for someday you'll be sitting in a deli, searching for some way to impress your friends, and you'll say, this place reminds me, I've got a story of the fifties. And we guarantee, as long as you speak about this Prince of Israel, you'll be the center of attention, the voice of your city.
0: Wonderful. Thank you.
1: I'd um, like to, you know, just say a word about uh, the poem. Uh, that it is based on actual incident of um, going to a deli with my parents getting a glimpse of Mickey Cohen, who you know some listeners might not know him. He was of course the gangster. It's featured in the movie L.A. Confidential, um, and. I guess why I remember this incident was my astonishment that everyone in the Delhi seemed so pleased to have him among us, even though he was a killer. Uh, And this told me something about that even among Jews, even among those for whom moral justice is so important, um, uh, celebrity overcame that uh, impulse. And I guess the uh, the poem, which is always very self-conscious about itself and the way it's telling the story that it's telling, um, I hope fools you. you. At first, you think that, well, Elroy Hirsch must be the celebrity who's referred to in the title. And then, no, it's Mickey Cohen. And then by the end it's the speaker of the poem. You'll be the center of attention, the voice of your city. And uh, so there's a kind of joke almost built in that the poet becomes famous for writing about other celebrities, um, becomes a kind of mini-celebrity. And in fact, when the poem was first published in Salma Gundy magazine, I got a number of letters, some of them saying to me, I didn't know that Elroy Hirsch was Jewish, which <laughs> of course he wasn't. Uh, but that's part of the comedy of the poem.
0: Well, and there's th- throughout the book there's a there's a sort of playing with of this, or uh, an awareness of um, the making of idols and the and the, the creation of memories and things to latch onto and the way the ways in which they come into view and then um, push back into the background and yes. and then resurface um, is. Part of what's what's really interesting about the ways in which you've woven the very different sorts of poems together, yes. in the um, in the book, for example, um, we were going to read this one a little bit later, but mm-hmm. I'd actually like to read it right now mm-hmm. um, so that we can kind of continue Thank along you. this thread. But if you will read for us, meeting the gray. I, I, I'll just murder that. You'll have to read the title. <laughs> Do it again. the Gry. There we yes. go. Okay. Um,
1: this is a story about Perseus. Now, here we've got a, an encounter as well, but, of course, this is in the mythical world of classical, classical mythology. Um, and... The humor of the poem, you might say, is that we're to imagine that the great hero, Perseus, who slew the Medusa, I guess his his most famous act in mythology, and saved Andromeda from being eaten by a dragon... if you've ever seen the movie Clash of the Titans, uh, you remember that's what happens in there. Uh, so Perseus is being interviewed um, as, say by a, a kind of newspaper man of the prehistoric period. Uh, and the monologue, it's a really a dramatic monologue since no one but Perseus speaks in the poem. Uh, the monologue uh, opens mid-sentence with perseus speaking to press my case hermes had said use eloquence then violence all three were swan-shaped ugly as the spinster gorgons they guarded passing their eye each to each for quick peeks of the baffling world they looked easy to outwit ants who trade everything for words of love I began with customary epithets. Sisters gray from your birth, gray shadows of the elder world, give me not your eye or tooth, not those remnants you share in the holy spirit of community. Give me your vital secret. Now I need the address of the nymphs who keep the winged sandals, the cap of invisibility, and the bag in which some enemy's head will bide its time. They seemed to know my type, the hero who spares them a tiny portion of his immortality. Still they demurred, so I had to get rough, and I can. I seized their one viscous eye and threatened to stomp it, fling it deep into the Trinitonian lake, or eat it. Eerie screams you can't imagine, and then the information. I stuck the jelly into the nearest crone's empty socket and resumed my fabulous destiny. You know the rest. I slew Medusa, stabbed to death the sea fiend who would have made Andromeda its meal. She was delicious, then. I should write my own epic deeds. Instead, past my lurid prime, I ponder the meaning of it all. The supreme stuff of Zeus is in me. Yet I feel infirm as the Gry, as if I were part of their story, a chance adventurer, Bold, but nothing extraordinary, nothing they couldn't serenely outlive. On visits to great Olympus, I'm sure those witches entertain the gods with my story, the task-oriented hunk unworthy of a wandering eye, one of many interruptions of their endlessly fascinating lives, a speck of mortal time like a gaudy sunset. The gods have heard it all before. So often they lip-sync every phrase. No text is sacred to those know-it-alls. Yet they applaud. The story's on me. Boy, wonder. Latest has been. Yes, I do have other duties. Send me a transcript of this interview. I'll add it to my archive. Large enough almost for a room in this inherited castle. Grand, richly appointed. Though the kids rarely visit and never write.
0: Wonderful. We'll take a short little musical break, mm-hmm. and then we'll be back with um, to talk about the ways in which those two poems, very different sorts mm-hmm. of poems, inhabit the same book. Okay. <laughs> listening to the Living writer show on WCBN this is Ashley David and my guest today is Lawrence Goldstein author most recently of the book of poems a room in California we just heard from one of the poems in the second second section of the book yes. second section of the book called um, meeting the cry and before that we heard a poem that comes early in the book um, called the celebrity and um, these are the tonally there there's a lot of different sorts of things going on there's there's more of an of um well there's obviously narrative and story going on in both but we've got idols in California gangsters and um the the celebrity of um or the the looking for and the creation of celebrity through the looking for of celebrity in um your home state and then we've got um this piece that's, that's working in a really different sort of way, but has a similar um, core to it. Would you talk about the ways in which mm-hmm. they are in dialogue with each other and how we've got the meeting of the gry and the meeting of the gangsters? I'd
1: right. <laughs> be glad to. Um, you know, I th- always been interested in the fact that each of us believes or thinks of ourselves as the center of the world, the center of a large narrative, and other people are just minor figures in our endlessly fascinating life, as Perseus would say. Um, And if we can get out of our mentality for a moment and shift to someone else's perspective, then you realize what a minor figure you are in everyone else's life, uh, and that ought to bring some humility. Uh, and I think that. You know what you find with especially uh, Perseus here is that he has undergone that process. You know, after celebrity comes the sense of loss, the sense of aging, uh, the sense of no longer being a hero, um, of more or less waiting in your castle for something else to happen, which may be a turn in your fortunes or just maybe death. Um, And so I think that that's where it fits. There's a paradigm of Fame, which everybody seeks out. Everybody wants to better his condition, as Adam Smith famously said in talking about capitalism. Um, everybody wants to enhance their selfhood, to make their story, their own personal narrative, a dominant one in the culture. Uh, and uh, many of these people succeed and continue, even after their death, to be fascinating figures. For example, Marilyn and who's the subject of another one of the poems, um. But many do not, and I'm interested in the way that certain figures like Madame New in one of my poems, uh, like uh, Mickey Cohen or Elroy Hirsch, or even Perseus, gradually fade out over time. Uh, They may be interviewed, they may be um, written about, uh, but basically they themselves often lead a kind of posthumous life in their own life, Um, and nowhere. Where is this more true than in Los Angeles, where it seems almost every week there's a new idol, I-D-O-L, there's a new figure on a billboard, there's a new figure in the newspapers and magazines, uh, a flavor of the month that everyone pays attention to for a while, and then over time gradually retires or is retracted back into anonymity. And that's a a subject that interests me a great deal. Uh, Even in the long poem, I realize that we're going to get to that later, but uh, there's a long, dramatic monologue about the figure Prester John, who was an immensely um, famous figure – which is more remarkable because he never existed mm-hmm. uh, during the Middle Ages and of course now is simply a legend I found in talking to people since writing the poem that most people don't know who Prester John is you know, uh, some have said, well, you know, they read my poem and then googled uh, Prester John found out, gee, what a great story that is but it's not one that is ever in front of us so um, Yes, I guess I see you know the part of the California story is the story of people who have tried to better their condition, who have done something adventurous, something brilliant, uh, something that's made uh, a uh, made waves uh, has brought them attention, and then have surpassed sort of out of memory simply because that's the nature of fame um, It's only given to a few people to keep that fame. That fame, and uh, so that's one subject that I guess is part of the location i mean it's not something that you know seems to apply to Michigan or to most places we know of, maybe only the big cities, where that sense of craving uh an identity craving some kind of identity above the crowd, above the masses uh, is just part of the life experience of people with ambition. So I guess that's the link I'd make.
0: Well, and there's something really interesting to me about situating this in Los Angeles, because while that's going on, Mm -hmm. um, there's still a really important thing going on. You've mentioned um, two different things in the course of this conversation, Mm -hmm. and it's evident in the book, um, that seem to be in tension with that sort of striving for fame and, mm-hmm. and with that ambition. And one of them is this notion of humility, yes. and another is um, a notion of justice. I mean, they're at the mm-hmm. core of your poems and... and the way in which I have um, been privy to your work, mm-hmm. I've I've sensed a very strong um, sense of justice, need for yeah, humility, yeah. love and passion for what you do, mm-hmm. and I think that that's what gives these poems some of their power. Um, w- while some of these intellectual threads are walking around yes. and working in very conscious ways, I think there's a there's a subtle but very strong undercurrent that has to do with something of um, emotion and and commitment to justice and and that's and humility those sorts of things. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit about how and whether those things are as conscious or if those are just sorts of parts of you that mm-hmm. become uh Parts of your work
1: yes well I think that, that that's true that um, in many poems uh, what I try to do is rescue someone or something that has been neglected or path, is threatening to pass into oblivion to rescue that person place or thing by means of the poem uh, I think this, you've the, done that with
0: Haydn as well I mean or, with, or sorry with Hayden with Robert Hayden yes, uh-huh. um, in in keeping his work in the forefront so in in your Work as a scholar and as a colleague, you've made that sort of rescue move.
1: Yes, uh, no, I try to do that um, because I think that it's so easy in this culture uh, for certain books to be canonized immediately, certain authors to become famous, and others just simply to be neglected. Uh, So, um, you know, there's a figure like, say, Radcliffe Squires, who's the subject of an elegy. He was a poet who wrote poems his entire life published many books and his work has been virtually forgotten so here's a poem about him um, I mean, I'm not going to read it but uh, I, I dedicated one poem to him and uh artworks, paintings, pieces of sculpture, Uh, I want to kind of restore as much as I can because I think these are part of my own selfhood. I mean, it's not just a totally generous, uh, altruistic desire, but somehow to link the personal and the public. um, There's a quotation, actually, I brought along with me from uh, Thoreau's Walden, which I think summarizes much of my intention. Thoreau says, I require of every writer, first or last, a simple and sincere account of his own life, and not merely what he has heard from other men's lives, some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land. For if he has lived sincerely, it must have been in a distant land to me." And I think that is what all writers want to do. I mean, they know that their own experience is unique. And they don't want to give up on it. They want to somehow present the uniqueness of people who have passed through their lives, people whom they've admired, even if many have not. Uh, They want to bring to life places in just the peculiar, sometimes eccentric way that they saw those places, that they felt those locations. Uh, They want to recreate how it felt to live in a certain time um, among people, places, and things. I think that there is a strong journalistic aspect, and when I was uh, a teenager, I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I wrote for the Los Angeles Times and other newspapers and thought for a long time that I would enter into journalism. Then I got to like poetry, and it's very difficult to put poetry and daily journalism together, but uh, I think this impulse to collect data, to collect information, and to pass it on, to chronicle it, uh, to leave it as a sort of pageant for others to either enjoy or neglect, uh, uh, is strong in every poet. I think the poet who's had perhaps the largest influence on me, uh, in who lived in my lifetime, is Robert Lowell. His book, Life Studies, is the paradigm, is the, the keystone of much contemporary poetry that attempts to make links between the public and the private worlds uh, to record one's experience of living in significant places uh, during the time of significant events and to somehow uh, record them so that other people will know what it was like just as we um, enjoy reading about the 18th century or the 12th century or whatever if we have intellectual curiosity we we want to know what it was like to live in other times and other places. Um, One of my favorite, uh, another influence on me was Carl Shapiro, um, a poet whose first book is titled Person, Place, and Thing. And I've always thought... That is a great title. I mean, isn't that what poetry is about? Person, place, and thing. Along with my other favorite title, Robert Browning's book, Men and Women. Um,
0: which is also a theme that comes up in your book, is this encounter bet- in general, and then the encounter between men and women. That's true. Um, yes, I was
1: surprised, actually, when I began to think about putting this book together and laid out all the poems I had written up to that point uh, in front of me and realized that so many of them were about some kind of encounter um, of, of male and female. And, of course, this is true of much poetry and right, much but narrative. Right, you know. it,
0: but it's particularly interesting in this way because you're conceiving of the book um, as um, sort of a rescuing and and memory and, and then mm. the fact that that rescuing in and of itself becomes an encounter and that the process of rescuing and, and putting together this sort of treasure trove of experiences that range... Um, the experiences of your life mm-hmm. into one place—that um, that happens in this way—is is is an interesting one. We're going to take a quick musical break, okay. and we'll be right back. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, we're 88.3. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Lawrence Goldstein. We're talking about his most recent book of poems, A Room in California. <laughs> Tra-la, la to all night long Yeah, tra-la, la-la, tra-la La-la-la-la, tra-la, tra-la-la to all night long Yeah, come on and let the good time roll we do gonna stay here till we soothe our soul If it take all night long one more time and let the time roll. We're going to stay here till we soothe our soul. If it take a whole night long, I got to tell you the evening sun is sinking low. The clock on the wall said it's time to go. I got my plan. Welcome back. It's five o'clock. It's WCBN FM eighty nine Sorry, 88.3 Ann Arbor. And um, we're here with Lawrence Goldstein talking about his book, A Room in California, on The Living Writers Show. We're going to switch gears for the last um, segment of the show and um, leave the book sort of aside for a moment because you wear so many hats and you bring so much to the table that I'd like to talk a little bit about. Um, You've been the editor of the Michigan quarterly now for, since 1977, is that right? And you've been teaching here at the University of Michigan since 1970. 1970, yeah. And you've been writing since before that. So you've been working with poetry and contemporary poetry and what that means and how that's changing and, and um, how history plays. Um, and those are some of the themes that come out in your book. But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to your, about your role as an editor um, and as a scholar and as a teacher um, of contemporary poetry and of poetry. Um, how? how what's, what's the poetry scene these days? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very difficult, as you know, to uh, nail down because in a way the essence of poetry now is that there is no center to it. There's no one way that every Everybody writes? And I'm sure listeners are thinking, well, has it has there ever been? And the answer is yes. I mean, there was, let's say, in the 18th century, um, a tendency for all poets to write in heroic couplets uh, following Dryden and Pope and Swift's uh, example. Uh, and we might say that there have been other eras where there were popular conventions, popular modes. Um, Even now we can see that the rebellion against convention in the early part of the 20th century, what we call modernism, now many of the Different aspects look very similar to us, but of course we're right in the center of contemporary poetry and, um, the essence of what's called postmodernism, which is both a time marker, you know, after the modernist revolution of the early part of the century, uh, but also a kind of aesthetic in itself. The essence of that is to be individual, to be unique, to try to be as different as possible from everyone else in order to make your claim. So, you know, there have always been, say, since World War II, these schools like um, the New York School of Poets or the Beat Generation or the Confessional School or so forth, um, which have given us a little bit of coherence. Um, but we've never been able to figure out which of those schools is central, which is mainstream. Maybe they all are, in which case perhaps none of them is. Uh, but and is you, that
0: part of the point? I mean, if yeah. we have... Uh, if the point is the individual, do we have um, the, f- the multiplicity of schools, multiple mm-hmm. voices? I mean, you know, polyvocality and bakhtin, all of I mean, yes, this is an important yes. part of our contemporary or our current history. Yes. I guess, can you say a current history? Uh, yes. Forgive me. <laughs> We'd like to write it no. now. <laughs> Well,
1: that's true. That's what we were talking about earlier. Um, the idea that okay, you want to find a style and a structure that is that ex- express it of your own selfhood, of your own personhood. Um, now, you know, you can do that thematically. Let's say by including a lot of references to popular culture, uh, to historical figures, to historical events, or to write in a genre like nature poetry or love poetry, but Uh, increasingly, I think there's an emphasis on individualizing yourself by means of technique, by means of finding a way of shaping the line, shaping the stanza, um, shaping the whole poem so that it does not go from beginning to middle to end, but... um, tries to thwart or subvert that traditional structure, uh, that uses incompleteness, that uses all kinds of techniques in order to frustrate the viewer, or frustrate the reader. Um, Susan Sontag famously said that the hallmark of modern art is to make itself unacceptable to the reader uh, or the viewer, and I'm not so sure she was right about the early part of the 20th century. But I think that's a phrase that might be used to describe the contemporary situation mm-hmm. at the same time, of course, that there are many poets who are writing very traditional poetry
0: well and it's an interesting slip that you that you just made in talking about poetry before you mentioned sontag you said to to frustrate the viewer because mm-hmm. um our our this moment is is a lot about um the visual. And there's all this controversy going on right now about, well, do people still read? Are they buying books? Um, It's it's a controversy I'm not so interested in because of Mm -hmm. course people are still reading Mm -hmm. books, but it's still a very interesting Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. and particularly interesting when when poets and writers are trying to figure out how to frustrate the audience and is the audience a viewer even if the audience is reading? How do you configure an audience? What's that about and how does that help you think about constructing your unique voice.
1: That's right. If you think of film as a paradigm, for example, I mean, there's popular film, uh, and then there's what used to be called underground film, or independent film, or experimental film. And generally, in America, there's been very little interest in underground film, It's something you might see in a couple of cities, in little art houses, but there would be no popular attention to it, Uh, whereas, of course sort of mainstream movies can be seen by hundreds of millions of people uh, around around the globe uh, and I think poetry has always had a large audience, if you think of song, as I do, as being part of poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a book of poems might only sell, you know, a couple thousand copies or something. And so people think, oh, well, then how important is it? But if you think of song, song lyrics as being poetry, then you could say that there's nothing on the planet more popular than poetry. Um, so uh the desire of some poets uh, to frustrate the reader, uh, to challenge the reader, to make their poetry unacceptable to the reader is something new. It's something that really comes along as part of modernism. And uh, it can be done exceptionally well. It can be provocative and suggestive. Um, But it's a dangerous edge that uh, I think writers are are moving on. You always want to sort of find the boundary and perhaps cross over it a bit in order to do something new as a poet, uh, to find new subject matter, to find um, new thresholds, as Hart Crane says. And to write in that in-between place uh, so that you're uh, taking the reader out of familiar realms into unfamiliar places and making new discoveries. Uh, So I think that's what's happening. and. Whether someone like John Ashbery will uh, be seen 20, 50 years from now as a central figure, whether he you know, he's been very influential, whether that influence will continue and come to be seen as seminal and his work as canonical, or whether it will be someone else uh, who you know who will occupy that space. Um, I was reading a piece about Sharon Olds this morning, very popular poet, writes very differently than Ashbery writes very uh uh coherent narratives mainly about herself um whether she will perhaps you know following Sylvia Plath become a kind of major figure uh or neither of them and someone who well, is writing now that we're hardly aware of but who will like Emily Dickinson or uh, someone of that sort emerge as a as a great central poet in the future we just don't know.
0: Well, and I wonder if you'll speak um, about, a little bit about, um, there's a there's a very popular wave across the country. You mentioned song lyrics, and mm-hmm. if, we, if we count that as poetry, then it's one of the most popular forms of expression on the planet. Yeah. I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about the spoken word um, and the, the, the poetry slams that are um, in major cities, and they've become events, yes. um, and not just events in communities from which they hail, but they're events that people are going to yes. as, um, as an important way to participate in in poetry. That's not the stuff of the Michigan Quarterly. Uh So where do you see that, and how do you think about it? I'm
1: very much in favor of it. Um, I first got interested in poetry when I was growing up in Los Angeles, and the beat generation had just come to town, and I used to go up to Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Boulevard to some art house uh, uh, or some nightclub and listen to the beat poets read their work, and I've always loved poetry readings. The poetry slam, I'm not so sure about. Uh, Certainly, I'm interested in that oral energy. And I've only been to a couple of poetry slams. I've heard a number of them on tape. Um, so I like what I hear, but it's true. I'm not sure whether this is going to continue to interest us on the page. And so for the Michigan Quarterly Review, I'm always looking for something that is stable on the page and that has interest uh, as a literary document that uh, or text that uh, reveals itself uh, through a complexity of language that I think you don't get from somebody who is speaking on a stage rapidly um, to a a huge audience that may have very little background in poetry.
0: Mm -hmm. And and it's also a very different thing what you're getting from song lyrics. I mean, there are very few people writing song lyrics today who you might include in sort of the the realm of literary poetry or the, the stuff of the Michigan Quarterly.
1: That's right. I mean, uh, I, uh, you know, I love uh, Bob Dylan and the Beatles and so forth. That was, that was the music I kind of was most excited by when I was uh, in my teens and 20s. Um, And I don't really know perhaps enough of the song lyrics that are being done this year or last year to say how good they are. But um, uh, if they're good, I want to hear them and I want to, you know, I want to even see how they look on the page.
0: Great. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, sort of some upcoming events. You have a reading coming up.
1: Yes. On October 6th, I'll be reading my poetry in the Rackham Amphitheater. That's the one on the fourth floor um, at 5 p.m. So everyone is invited to that.
0: Lovely. Mm-hmm. And then you have another. But this this book of poems came out this summer, is that? Uh, in August. In August. Yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's just out. Mm-hmm. And you have another book coming out in October, is it?
1: Yes. Next month, the University of Michigan Press will publish um a volume that I edited called Writing Ann Arbor and it's an anthology of writings about Ann Arbor from the beginnings, you know, eighteen 18- 20s, 1830s, up to the present day, uh, which includes many very famous writers who have passed through Ann Arbor, who have been undergraduates or graduate students here, and have written about the city. So again, we're back to location, location, location.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And more local, even. (laughs) We're back to the local location. (laughs) Well, Larry, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a real treat. We have been speaking today on The Living Writers Show with Lawrence Goldstein, author, most recently, of a room in California, and of the forthcoming Writing Ann Arbor. Writing Ann Arbor, yes. um, also the editor of Michigan Quarterly, and a professor here in the English Department at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining. Thank
1: us. Thank you, Ashley. This has been a pleasure.
0: Wonderful. Next week we will have the British British. Playwright Neil Bartlett, who is the author of the 1988 meditation on Oscar Wilde called Who Was That Man? We'll be talking about that book in particular, although he's written many other things. Please stay tuned. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This has been The Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David.
1: have late about some, some no, we're going to talk about pennant races